Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My special guest today on One for the Road is a resilience coach, he's an ambassador for NACOA, and he is one of the nicest men I've ever met. Please welcome Josh Connolly. So today's guest is Josh Connolly. He's a good friend of mine and I feel so privileged to have him on my show, One for the Road, today. How are you, Josh? I'm excited. It's always good to be speaking to you. We just had a quick conversation uh, about our kind of friendship and uh, we're, we're very connected despite maybe not having connected loads and loads and loads over the past few years. We, we, we feel very, very aligned, which is nice. So I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, me too, mate. I mean, to feel the guys listening to this podcast, how we met, you were talking at the BBC and you introduced me after and I was kind of in awe of you because for such a young guy, you've got so much wisdom and, and it was like, I think I was only a few months sober then. And uh, you speak so eloquently and it, it was like, oh my God, this guy's fantastic. And we met and then I think we arranged to meet at the BBC after. And that's when I had um, one of my life-changing disasters where I met Tyson Fury and panicked and didn't ask for a picture with him. <laughs> and he's one of your heroes. Well, yeah, the, the biggest disaster was the fact that I was, was I late? I think I was like yeah. five minutes late. So I missed him completely. I know. And and uh, you saw him and failed to do anything about it. <laughs> I think it would have cheered you up, actually, even if I'd showed you a picture of me and him. But anyway, that was that. And we we had a really, really in-depth conversation. And I think that was the first time we'd met properly on our own, wasn't it? Yeah. Is it the only time we've met on our own? I think it is, because then we had lockdown, didn't we? So... As we were talking before this recording, we, we feel like we've known each other forever. And it's incredible how you can have that alignment in life where you just meet someone and you're instantly connected. And I listened to one of your podcasts earlier and, and it brought up a lot of emotions in me. So I'm just hoping that um, by the end of this podcast, I'm not just a dribbling mess on the floor and we can go ahead with it so <laughs> thanks so much for joining me Josh so I'd generally like to start right at the beginning actually and I'd like to ask you about your childhood and how that was for you well look I think for a lot of my life the thing about my childhood is that I packaged it up nicely and did what I what actually I think to a degree society expects you to do which is I ran around saying yeah it was tricky there were there were difficult times but People had it way worse than me. And so I've got no reason to be upset about it. But actually, as I began to open up to it and start to look at it in its kind of entirety, my dad was an alcoholic. So I grew up in an environment where it was it was difficult. You know, you you were constantly walking on eggshells when I was when I was a kid. You didn't want to be the person that was going to set him off. And I guess probably the most sad thing really is that what I remember of my dad, who I'm who I'm told was a good man and I believe was a good man. My only memories of him was was that he was a violent, angry chaotic man who scared me when he was drunk and scared me when he was sober and I think that the distinction of scaring me when he's sober was is really really important because arguably they were the more frightening times because you you, you kind of never knew what was going to happen at least when he was drunk you kind of knew where you were at to a degree as scary as it was and I lived with two brothers I had a brother who was a year and a half younger than me and a brother who was a year and a half older than me and we spent most of our time particularly in those really early years upstairs and you did that because because you didn't go downstairs because it was too scary and and, you know, with the work that I do today, I, I learned, like I know a lot of children learn, which is that the rules of the house is that you don't talk, you don't trust and you don't feel. They weren't rules that were written down and stuck on the wall. You know, not, my, nobody ever sat us down and told us them. But you learned them by the ways in which, or well, certainly I did, that, that we interacted with our parents. You know, I think when, when you drink alcohol, it, it can be very easy the next day to sweep everything under the carpet and think, oh, that was a bad one. Let's forget it. But when you're kids, you, you don't forget it. And I think... You know, some of the 
coping strategies that I learned as a kid that, that stuck with me through to my adulthood. The, you know, lots of the things that I've struggled with throughout my life, I think can be traced back to survival mechanisms when I was a kid. But for example, being led in bed at night at the age of four or five years old and hearing fighting and screaming downstairs and hearing my mum screaming, you're going to wake the boys up, don't wake the boys up and squeezing your eyes tight as hard as you can, but not being able to go to sleep. And my brain developed a way to tune out, to not be present. And that very mechanism got me thrown out of most classrooms that I ever went in as a kid. It also means as an adult that sometimes my wife will say to me, I feel like you don't want to be here. It's like you're not with us. And I used to shame myself because I didn't know why I did that. But, you know, I, I began to learn that that started off as a survival mechanism when I was a kid to detach from the ways that I felt to not be present. When I got overwhelmed, I did that to survive. And so you start to realize, you know, how, how much I learned as a kid. You know, so much of what I've struggled with, I believe, in my adulthood can be traced back to to my childhood and 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 actually to a survival mechanism. You know, the, my my anxiety disorder that I was diagnosed with in my early twenties looks a hell of a lot less disordered when you look at the disordered environment in which it first existed in. You know, it, it made sense for me to be in fight or flight a lot. And look, my dad went to prison when I was just before I started school. I did okay. I did well at school initially. You know, one of the ways that I reacted to not being able to receive any love at home was to desperately try and become lovable at school, cared about everybody else. I've always been an expert at being liked, you know. I worked hard at it because at my core I felt like I wasn't lovable. And then, you know, my dad's dad spent a few years in prison when my dad came out of prison. I even remember the first time my dad came out of prison, he was supposed to pick me up from school. He'd been in prison for like three years, four years. And I remember standing in the playground as it emptied and he didn't show up. I remember being stood next to the teacher and I was like eight years old. And, you know, the only thing that I was thinking is I need to make sure this teacher's all right because she must feel awful. And I took that with me into my adulthood as well, by the way. You know, I was never in tune with myself. I was so in tune with other people at the expense of myself. I lost my dad when I was nine years old, when I lost my dad. I was there when it happened. He, You know, he was his drinking it got terrible. It was worse when he came out of prison. And I think, look, ultimately I went on to... I I, ne I never wanted to drink. I mean, I saw the way that my dad was, and I used to think, when everyone wanted to be a doctor or a I don't know, a policeman, fireman, I wanted to have kids and not be a drunk. Just wanted to have kids and not be a drunk. And I found alcohol when I was about twelve years old. It changed my life. During this time with your dad, um, what was the relationship with your mum like? Emotionally, I became her caregiver very young. Emotionally, you know, if you think of like after a particularly bad night, perhaps my dad was really drunk. Maybe he was being and no violence, smashing the house up. The next morning, my mum would frantically be acting like everything was okay. She'd be saying, this isn't your fault. I, you know, your dad was just a bit angry last night. I, you know, everything's okay. And then she would say stuff like, you're okay, aren't you? And at four years old, I knew when my mum said, you're okay, aren't you? She wasn't seeking to create a space for me to explore my emotions. Emotionally, my mum was full herself, right? And she was seeking for me to validate her need for me to be okay. And I sensed that. I knew that as a boy. And so I didn't just be okay. I showed my mum I was brilliant. Everything's fine, mum. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And that's when I learned to abandon myself. I learned that the way to get attachment from my mum was to show her that everything was okay. I sensed my mum's stress. I felt the way my mum felt. And I adapted to that. So I showed her I was okay all of the time. So we were very close, but I was unable to express who I really was to my mum. You know? And I think... This is not just true in, in any alcoholic home when you've got a parent like that. I think it's true in a lot of, of homes. We hide behind, oh, you know, it's just being British. But I think it's more that we're just full of generational trauma of emotional avoidance, right? We teach kids not to be themselves in their emotions. I never learned how to be sad. My problem has never been that I feel sad a lot. My problem has been the sense of shame and rejection I feel when I'm in my sadness. And if I don't find a way how to be in my sadness when I'm a child, then I won't know how to be sad when I'm an adult. And maybe when that sadness comes and I feel the sense of shame and I feel like everyone's going to reject me when they see me in my sadness, maybe I'll find something like alcohol and I'll drink that every time I feel sad. And maybe I saw the pain that my mum felt when my dad was angry. And maybe I learned that anger was bad. And listen to the language you use. I was beside myself with anger. I never learned how to be myself when I was angry. I pushed my anger down. And then I started getting drunk and fighting people. And I'm terrified of confrontation. And so emotionally, my mum was not able to be available for me in the way that she wanted and needed to be. Now, my mum's an incredible human being. And if my dad had been suffering from something that wasn't stigmatized, 
we'd have got all the support and love in the world and we wouldn't have had to hide from our emotions. But my dad was an alcoholic. And in our society, despite the fact that 90% of people have a terrible relationship with alcohol, if you're an alcoholic, you're stigmatized. And so we had nowhere to go. My mom was terrified if she sought any kind of help, she'd have her children taken away from her. So we kept it behind closed doors like everybody else does. And so my mom was robbed of the right to be the mum that she wanted to be. And I was robbed of the mum that I needed, right? And that's not about blame or anything like that. It's just the, the simple understanding of the way that my life went. So when you started drinking at 12 years old, what did that mean for you? Was you hanging around the shops or what were you doing? Well, look, society will tell you I fell into the wrong crowd, right? Foul sounds very accidental. It was nobody's fault. Uh, and the wrong crowd makes it sound like if I didn't go with the wrong crowd, I wouldn't have done it. That, that, I, I didn't fall into the wrong crowd. I went there mm. because it looked like they had something that worked. And they weren't the wrong crowd. They were my people. It was other young boys and girls who in some way were feeling emotional abandonment in the same way that I was. It might not have been an alcoholic parent. It might have been a parent that works too much. It might have been parents that were staying together for the kids. So the house was walking on eggshells environment. Whatever it was, we were all experiencing the same thing. And alcohol changed my life. And I was, at a, I was at a kid's mental health event I was speaking at a few years ago. And one of the speakers got us to do this exercise. They said, close your eyes and think of the first happy memory you've got in your life. And I closed my eyes. And the first thing that came to my head was being down the park and drinking alcohol. Because from inside, my life was all right for the next few years. Externally, it wasn't, by the way. You know, when you looked from the outside, I got involved in terrible things. But I felt good. I felt all right. Drink really, really worked for me. And if I could speak to the 12-year-old kid that I was, I'd say, thank you for finding a way to keep yourself alive in a world that was giving you nothing else. Because mm. it wasn't. I was being shamed and, you know, reprimanded for the ways that I acted out how I felt. And drink, listen, drink worked. Oh my God, did it work. I, you know, when, when I think about it in that way, I can understand why our society loves it so much. Because, because it worked. And was it just alcohol or did you get into drugs as well? I actually smoked cannabis before I drank alcohol. And I smoked cannabis every single day of my life until the day that I gave up all drugs and alcohol. I was very into upper drugs like pills, eventually cocaine, speed, those kind of things. Naturally, I was into that because, I, you know, the role that I'd always played within the family, that system that I existed in as a kid was the mascot. I was the one that made everybody happy. And so to keep up that pretense, I was naturally drawn to drugs that helped me to be on the go all of the time. Yeah. Always making people laugh, always being crazy, you know, always being center of it, all of that kind of stuff. Cause that's where I got my validation from. So it was natural that I went onto those drugs, but underneath it all it was alcohol that I loved. It was uh, uh, probably cannabis as well to, to the same degree, but alcohol was way, way, way more destructive than any other drug that I had. Not least because once I got to 18, the world would look at me in disgust when they saw how many pills I was doing on a Saturday night, but no one cared that I was doing a bottle of vodka as well, right? People would literally tell me, lay off the pills, lay off the pills and come down the pub, right? And do this other drug. And that's how it was. It's the feeling of um, acceptance, I suppose, because I had a, I mean, I had quite um, a secluded childhood and it was nothing like yours at all. I mean, my mum and dad rarely drank. My dad used to make homemade wine. And uh, I always used to look in the cupboard under the stairs and see that little sort of bubble mm -hmm. pop up and down where the uh, wine was fermenting and that. So I never really experienced my mum and dad being drunk or anything like that, but they didn't know how to say they love me. And I grew up feeling quite insecure, really. And it's only now I'm older that I realised that, but I was never hugged, never told they were proud of me they never said to me oh god I love you Dave come here and that and um is when my mum left I actually like yourself got into the wrong crowd and they were the wrong crowd um and I kind of knew that so when you said they were the right crowd for you they definitely served me in some areas because they made me more streetwise and aware of what's really going on in the real world. But I started drinking and like what you've just said, the drugs really didn't do a lot for me then. So I never went down that road, but booze was definitely the one that stopped me feeling insecure, rejected, unwanted. I felt part of the gang, which I didn't really kind of fit in now looking back, you know, um, and kind of shaped me for the rest of my adult life until I gave up drinking. So I can really relate to what you're saying there. And you know, Dave, that people often say to me, my life was nothing like yours, right? The biggest wound I experienced as a kid 
was the simple fact that my mum and dad, for whatever reason, the reason's irrelevant. My mum and dad, for whatever reason, weren't able to make and show me that I was lovable in every single, every single emotion that I had. Every child should have at least one adult that can show them that they are loved in every single one of their emotions. When they're happy, sad, lonely, rageful, jealous, right? Now, my dad was an alcoholic. That's why my mum and dad couldn't do it. I just think society to a degree is emotionally inept anyway. And so lots of kids grow up with that same wounding, that feeling that if I'm sad, then I'm not quite as lovable. If I'm angry, certainly I'm not quite as lovable, right? And so that wounding is the same. That wounding is the same because the attachment that we seek from our parents is not, it's not a, a desire. It's a need. It's an evolutionary need that we, we will attach to our parents. And actually parents are taught. We teach parents in society that the biggest responsibility they'll have as a parent is that they've lived their life and they need to show their kids how to live theirs. That's not, I don't believe that's the responsibility. The biggest responsibility is just how much children will abandon themselves to make sure that they can attach to you. And if you're unable to show them that love, then they will learn that they're not lovable. Because if my parents can't be emotionally available for me when I'm a child, I've got two options. The first one is to accept that my mum and dad can't be emotionally available for me. The second one is to make it my fault. And the second one's much safer because the first one's end game. My mum and dad can't love me or can't be, can't show me their love. That's unbearable as a child. If it's my fault, let me try and work a little bit harder at school. Let me try and be a bit more funny. Let me try and find a way to get my mum and dad to pay me some attention. Because let me tell you, attention's just like water. If there ain't no clean one, I'll drink the dirty stuff. So I'll get thrown out of school and then maybe my mum and dad will have to sit in a room with me and look me in the eye and deal with me. And maybe that's the only way that I can find attachment in them. And so, you know, the, the, the wound that we're talking about is the same for nearly every, everyone in, this, in, our, in Western culture. It's the inability of adults to be able to love us in our full range of emotions. And do you think as well it's partly a generational thing? Because when I look back, I had therapy about this. And one of the first questions he asked me was, um, what was my parents' upbringing like? And my dad was brought up with lots of women around him. He was tall, gangly and ridiculed quite a lot. And he was never, he's still here, he's never really able to show his emotions. And my mum had a similar kind of thing. And it's about education as well, isn't it? Because for me, I when I had my son George, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be different. And I've got such a close relationship with George because I've hugged him as a man in front of his friends. And I've always told him that I loved him, that I'm proud mm. of him and stuff like that. So I just wonder if it doesn't make any excuse, but whether partly it's a generational thing and we, we can learn. And that's why podcasts like this, talking to you can maybe if people relate to it, they can think, I need to make some tweaks in my life because, I mean, Emily agree that with my stepkids now, I'm not always emotionally available. But talking to you, I, I'm looking inside myself and thinking, God, you make so much sense. I, I need to do something about this, you know, because it has such a knock-on effect. Yeah. And I mean, you said there that it's not an excuse, but it's definitely a reason. And when you go back through generations, you'll learn that generation after generation, as we teach, we're still doing it. We're still teaching kids not to be themselves in their emotions. If you're angry, you'll still get thrown out of most classrooms in, in every school, right? If you're sad, most adults will still tell you to be brave and come on, you're all right, don't be sad, don't be sad. Not because they're horrible people, but because they can't be in their own sadness. And if I can't be in my sadness, then I'm not going to be with you and yours. And if my, if my kids go into an emotion that scares me, I'm going to pull them out of it. And what am I going to teach them? Don't be in that emotion. And so change absolutely is possible. Because if I can start to learn to be myself in my emotions, then I'm going to teach my kids to be themselves in their emotions. Mm -hmm. If I don't learn to be in my emotions, I'll rationalize my kids away from theirs. And it's not that we go, you know, you don't be sad in this house, but we'll find ways to dodge around and, and not let sadness come in, right? Or any other feeling that we struggle with, right? And so I think as a parent myself, the greatest work that I can do for my children is to do the work on myself so that when my kids go into different emotions that they're struggling with, I can be there with them in them emotions and help them comprehend them. And that's tricky work. And I think if you get it right 30% of the time, you're doing really, really well. That's my belief. You know, I can talk very nicely like it like now, but later on when I'm sat with my kids, if I've got some stuff going on in my world, 
and my kid comes to me with one of their emotions, I'm not going to be there with them in it. And sometimes I need to have the humility to be able to go to my kids the next day and say, you know what, I'm really sorry that yesterday I devalued your experience. That was because I had my own stuff going on. And I'm a human being who still struggles. And I think we think that we're supposed to teach kids that we're tough and strong all of the time. And I think it's wrong. I think we need to teach them how to be themselves in all their full range of emotions. And we do that by being ourselves and ours, I think. I absolutely hear you there, mate. And, um, you know, educating them after the event is really important because sometimes in the moment you're overwhelmed, you've got enough on your plate, you've got things going on. And, you know, I've been guilty of it itself where there's a lot of noise and that. And it's like, all I want to do is hide in a a quiet room and be with my own thoughts, you know. Mm. But it's the after effect that it could have on them of the rejection and where he's not interested in what I've got to say in that. So to say it the next day, look, I'm really sorry about that. I know I wasn't emotionally available for you is really, really important. Well, it's it, th- that is the work because we're human beings. So ultimately we, we have our flaws and we can't be there all the time, right? Children are, na- children are not naturally resilient. I think it's a mistake when we say that. So I, think, I think it's a cop-out. Children are naturally adaptable. They're natural born survivors, right? And so in those moments when you can't be with your kids, in those moments when I can't be with my kids, if I don't help them comprehend why that happened, they'll make up a reason. And the reason they make up will be about them. There's something wrong with me because dad don't want to be here with me, right? If the next day I go to them and say, listen, here's what happened yesterday. And I'm, I'm really sorry that I was like that, right? And I can be here with you now if you want to go over it. But just know that what happened yesterday was nothing to do with you. It was to do with me yeah. and my struggle, right? And then you teach your kids that we're human beings, that you're allowed to mess up. Because look at society today, and we're, te- we're so terrified of shame, that feeling of shame, we don't let anybody mess up. We cancel everybody. Say one thing wrong, boom, you're gone. You're dropped from society, right? So we're trying to create this shameless society where we forget that we're all human beings and we're completely, you know, we're always flawed. Listen, I say stuff all the time that if you quoted it back to me the next day, I'd be like, who the hell said that? And if you said you, I'd be like, oh, did I? Yeah. No idea where that come from or why I said that, right? So so as an emotional, emotive person, I mess up a lot, yeah, a hell of a lot. And I don't care how hard anybody's working on themselves. If they're claiming that they don't mess up anymore and they don't get it wrong anymore, I think they're hiding. So, um, you know, I think the, the real work is understanding that we make mistakes regularly and it's what we do with them yeah absolutely powerful stuff mate so um moving on then um for your teens early 20s did things change for you uh no (laughs) when i left school like i i I was very um i was always thinking in my head like i just gotta make sure i control this drinking malarkey right as long as i don't get like my dad my life will be all right yeah i can have a good drink on the weekends and work hard right uh something that you're allowed to do in our society, by the way. Here's the truth, right? You can drink as much as you want. You could drink every single day, abandon your kids and never be there for them. And if you pay the bills and hold down a house, society will tell you you're all right. And as somebody who used to take my four kids down the pub on a Saturday, sit them in the corner with a bag of crisps and a Coke and tell them to be quiet and get absolutely battered, paralytic, drunk, blacking out, nobody ever said a word to me. I go to the pub today with my father-in-law to watch a bit of football order a Coke and say, no, I'm not the designated driver. I just don't drink. Everyone has an opinion on it and wants to talk about it. I get way more grief now as a sober man than I ever did as a drunk. And I think that's a reflection of society as a whole. So my first daughter was born when I was 18 years old. And I remember feeling a sense of the game is up. I've got to knock this on the head now. And I remember, this will make me emotional, but I remember when I remember holding my daughter in my arms when I was 18, I was a kid and I wanted more than anything in the world to be a good dad to her I, I i thought this is it you know i can't be like my dad anymore the game's got to change i've got to i've got to come to terms with the way with everything and i made a start i got a job i got a house i got a car I had a mortgage at 18 years old with a child i had a job in a factory but the truth is i couldn't show up to my daughter she was this big ball of emotion when she was a kid before she had a rational brain and i didn't know what to do with her and I started working as hard as I could because that's, you know, I just work. Let me just work. And I did that. And I and I drank more and more. I drank heavily on the weekends. I was smoking cannabis every day. Cannabis helped me to be able to have a bit of a drink in the week and then smoke a cannabis, smoke smoke some, some weed, and then it would knock you out so you didn't drink massively. And then on the weekends, I hit the drink hard. And 
I was involved in football violence on the weekend. Something that made me feel part of, made me feel wanted and needed, allowed me to release my emotions. And by the time I was 24, I had four kids. The marriage had broken down. I'd progressed through my job naturally because I worked hard, right? I couldn't stop drinking. Now, from the outside, I didn't, I sort of looked all right in the eyes of society, yeah, because I always worked and I progressed through my job. And there were times when I would like finish work on Friday and I'd think, you know what, this weekend, I'm going to, I'm going to take my kids away. You know, we're going to go, I tell the kids, we're going to go to Fort Park or something extravagant like that. And I'd finish work on Friday and I'd be sober and I'd done like two or three days sober. So I could always do that. I could always do sober days if I needed to, especially if somebody needed me to prove that I weren't a drunk. Yeah. I could do that. So I can't have a problem. Yeah. And I'd finish work on Friday and I'd be like telling everyone I'm going to do this with the kids the next day. And I'd be walking home from work. And then I think I'm just going to pop in the pub and have a Coke and tell everyone that I'm what I'm doing. Right. And somewhere between the door and the bar, the Coke changed to a beer or cider I used to drink. And then I wouldn't go home. You know, I wouldn't go home to my kids and I would show back up on a Sunday. My kids devastated. Where was I all excited? And I didn't know why I did what I did. And I hated myself for it. I hated myself for it. And I couldn't stop. I could, I, I could, like, I could stop, but only to prove that I don't have a problem. Let me do a week. Let me do two weeks. Prove that I'm not, I ain't got a problem. Whenever I quit drinking that way, it was always led by drink. It was the fact that I'll do two weeks and then I'll make up for it. And by the time I was 24, my life was a mess. I was nine and a half stone living on a fold-up bed at my mum's house. The marriage had completely fallen down. It was a toxic, toxic relationship anyway. So that was one of the best things that ever happened. But I was, like I say, 17 grand, nine and a half stone, four stone lighter than what I am now. And I, I couldn't deal with life anymore. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be here. I didn't know what to do. But I'd struck up a good friendship with the landlord of the pub, ironically. And he was a compulsive gambler who had stopped gambling. He sort of took me under his wing a bit. And it was the first time I'd ever heard a man talk about escaping his emotions by using something his was gambling. And I started to realize that maybe alcohol and drugs was my problem. And it was the 14th of May, 2012. I woke up on a Monday and um, I stopped drinking and stopped using drugs. And I, I've not touched a drop or an ounce of any of them apart from caffeine <laughs> and sugar. You're definitely drugs. Uh, but I haven't gone back to those substances since. But, but that wasn't the end. You know, it, things got worse for me when I quit drinking. So when you got up on that day, had you just had enough and you thought, right, I'm just quitting everything? Because that's quite difficult, isn't it? I mean, I did that myself um, on the 7th of January 2019. It, it was almost like a light had shone on me from above and said, right, I'm going to help you. I told you before this uh, interview that um, my mum visited in my dream shortly after she died. And she was about 40 years old in this old mansion house. And I was lost in this house, which is, you know, there's something there. I was lost. Mm. Um, and I walked into this room and she was sitting on this sofa and she was immaculate, bearing in mind that I was with her when she died. Mm. And um, she died with her eyes open and her mouth open. And that stays with me. She said to me, she held my hand and she said to me, David, I just want you to know that I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And it, it changed me. Mm. And it was shortly after that that I stopped drinking. And to this day, I swear that my mum's had some form of hand in me doing what I'm doing now. She's proud of me now. She's, it's gone on from my relationship as a child where she would never hug me. It feels like she's supporting me now, even though she's mm. gone, you know. Did you have like a pinnacle thing that you decided that day, right, I've had enough? Or did you just know that was it? There was like a, there was a long series of events that had sort of happened. You know, I'd had a terrible accident at work about two years before. I crushed my foot and uh, I ain't got time to tell you about it, but I crushed my foot and had loads of toes on my left foot amputated because it was crushed so badly. And uh, I knew I was going to be getting a bit, a bit of money for that. And I knew that while I was drinking, I wouldn't clear my debt. So there was lots of different things like that. But the 13th of May, which was the last day that I had drinking, I was supposed to be with my kids and I had carted them back to their mum's house and said, I can't deal with them, take them back. And I'd gone to the pub and it was the day that Aguero scored the last second goal for Man City to win the league. And you know, the commentator goes, Aguero! And I distinctly remember looking around the pub and there's beer going everywhere and everyone was jumping up and down. And 
I remember thinking, I'm not, this, is, this isn't working anymore. I'm steaming drunk and the drink's not working anymore. And so it was kind of the realization that the way that alcohol had worked for me when I was in my teenage years was it wasn't doing it anymore. I was just as miserable when I was drunk as I was when I weren't drunk. So what was the point? So there was a sense of that. But what I must say is that you talked beautifully about that experience with your mum. And I think there is some missing ingredient that we can't define that we don't, we can't fully explain, you know, that experience that you've had with your mum, you can't, you can't fully, you know, you can't fully explain that. You couldn't go to somebody that wanted quit drink and say, you need to be able to have that connection. So, so I don't, I wish I knew what that was. The only thing I can surmount it to is grace. I've, I've looked at it in a million and one different ways over the past nine years. I've put it down to spiritual experiences. At one point I thought it was a religious experience, but the truth is I lost a friend last year to suicide. He had a terrible problem with alcohol. He wanted it as much as me. He wanted sobriety as much as me. This isn't about how much I wanted it. I wish it was, because then I could just motivate everybody to do it and we'd all stop. I don't know what that ingredient, I don't know what it was, but something happened. And I'm thankful that it did because I stopped drinking alcohol as a result. I can't fully take credit for it is what I have to say, because I'd love to, and I used to, I've done times when I do, but the more I see people, the more I lose people to this illness and, and, and to, to addiction of any kind, I lose people that want it as much as me. And I, and, I don't, and I don't know what it was that made me be able to do it. I understand that. So when I gave up drinking, it was like I'd taken the blinkers off. I had a view around me I'd never seen. The sun came out and I was full on into my sobriety. I was shouting it from the sky. For you, I believe it was slightly different, right? Yeah. I mean, I, like I had an initial probably month or two where I just went, you know, I was like this new, it was, I was, cause I was no, like I was Josh from the Wheaty. That's what I was known as, the Wheaty, the Wheatchie. And I used to go down the pub. I still went to the pub every day. Cause I didn't, I mean, I didn't know who I was without alcohol. I didn't know what to do. So I used to go down the pub every day and just drink Coke. And the thing was, is that I said all of these things, you know, people were saying, wow, you've done a month, you've done two months. And I was saying, it's amazing. I just love my kids. You know, it's so good to be sober. But the truth was, is that behind it all, all of that emotion was coming back and I had no way to deal with it. I was still doing some of the things that I used to do when I was drinking. I, I wasn't treating people in the way that I should. My kids came on the weekend and I, f you know, had feelings like I didn't want them to be there and I didn't know what that meant. And then, so now that I couldn't blame it on alcohol, the truth was is behind all the lies that I was telling, which was that, you know, I love it and it was amazing and all that kind of stuff is I thought, well, there's nowhere to go now. And because of alcohol, I can't blame that anymore. And I got to nine months sober and I didn't, like, I didn't see anybody talking about quitting drinking and it being crap. And I wasn't talking about it. And what was I supposed to say? I feel like I hate my kids. I mean, like, like this is what, this is why I think when we talk about mental health problems, it, it, it devalues it because I've never resonated with a mental health problem. I felt like I wanted to die. I felt like I hated everyone. I felt like I hated myself and my kids, right? That's the ways that I feel when I'm, when I'm struggling. And so I always remembered when my dad died, when we went to look at him, before the funeral, my mum had said, maybe this draws a line in the sand for everybody. She said, your dad was so sick. Maybe he was never going to get well. He hated the pain that he caused you kids. He hated the pain that he caused the people around him. And maybe this draws a line in the sand. And I thought back to that when I was nine months sober. And I just thought to myself, maybe I can draw a line in the sand for the people around me. When I decided to take my own life, it wasn't because I wanted the pain to end. That was part of it, but I'd always wanted the pain to end. That's why I drank like a fish. When I made the decision, it was because I thought it was the best thing for everybody around me. And listen, my truth is when I made that decision, I felt very at peace. And I went to see my kids for one last time. And because I knew I was going to die, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way I'd never experienced. I remember cuddling my daughter and thinking, this is what, this is how it's supposed to be. And I saw my son go down the slide and he looked at me when he got to the bottom because he wanted to see that I'd watched him and I'd never experienced that. And in those moments, I, I changed my mind. But more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that what was killing me was coming from inside of me. And uh, probably less than that, at the time, I actually thought to myself, if I can convince myself that I'm going to kill myself next week for the rest of my life, then maybe I'll have some good weeks. But, but ultimately, what was behind that was realizing that alcohol and drugs were never my problem. They were an attempt at a solution. They were a reaction to the problem. My problem was the ways that I felt inside. And so what I started to do after that was, was come out and say to people, I don't like being sober. I don't know what to do. I hate my life. I hate 
everyone and everything. And I don't know how to be anymore. And when I started doing that, people started, <laughs> started relating to me. And I started finding deep, meaningful connections with people based on, on, on who I really was. And then I started to find ways to work through that. And I started to realize that I'm allowed to feel all of the things that I feel. It's the shame that I feel alongside those feelings that's causing me the problems. And when I find people that allow me to be in my emotions without trying to fix me, because when somebody tries to fix me and says, I know what's right for you, that's a judgment. That's you saying, I know what's right for you, so I know what's wrong with you, right? And so it devalues my experience. But when I found, particularly men, just because I'm a man myself, when I found other men that allowed me to sit in my emotions and express them without trying to fix them, judge them or change them, I started to realize that it was, it was the very act of expressing my authentic emotions that was causing me the problem. My depression was literally that, my depressed emotions that I had pushed down into my body because I couldn't experience them. And I had moments of wailing and releasing pain that had been there for years, and I still do, still have that today. And it's those moments, they're the healing moments for me, not the ability to package up everything and go, here's my experience and here's why I feel, why it doesn't affect me anymore. Healing for me is going, here's my experience and here's how it affects me. And I'm okay with that because sometimes I look at my, my son and he looks at me and I think, I wonder if my dad ever looked at me like that, the way that I'm looking at him now, because I don't remember it. And that makes me sad. It makes me want to cry. And so it should. My problem is not that it makes me cry. My problem is that when it makes me cry, I shame myself and say, I'm 33 and I should be over that. And I, and I shouldn't be over it. I shouldn't be over it. I should be sad about it because that's normal. And so I allow myself to be sad about it today. And so less and less I seek escape, although I still do. But less and less, and less I seek escape because I feel that emotion. I let it come out like I just did then. I feel it in my eyes and I go, you know what? You're allowed to feel that. And all of a sudden I feel a bit lighter and I feel a bit free. And I've been in a space with you now where I've expressed that emotion. I see and feel the emotion in you. I don't care that we're, you know, this is online. I still see and, and, and feel it in you. And I feel like a human being because it makes you upset too. And we're just the same. And that's what the work is for me. And that's why on every street corner, you'll find an off license. Why? Because alcohol gives people hope because they get drunk and everything goes away and they feel lighter and they feel like things are all right in those moments. But when that stops working, we become obsessed with how much we need and we start trying to, we do more and more and more. And then we just drink to just to get out of ourselves because we can't be in ourselves when we experience emotions. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the last nine years has been about learning how to be myself in my full range of emotions. I agree, mate. And and uh, you're spot on when you say that you can see it in me. And I know the listeners can't, but that that's literally, I was brimming with emotion then when you were talking like that. And obviously it resonates a lot for me. And, um, you know, I'm 57 this year and I still, on some days, I sit on my own and I, I get tearful. I feel sad. I feel guilty. But what do I do with that? You know, now I don't brush it aside. I sit with those feelings and I acknowledge them, which is really important for my own self-development still. You never stop growing, you know. Mm. And uh, I heard, I was listening to one of your podcasts this week and uh, part of your daily ritual now is 20 minutes of sitting with yourself, some time looking in the mirror, acknowledging your self-love. And I think that's such a powerful way, part of your day. Yeah, every day, because... Because listen, for, for everything that I've said, there's times in my life when I still run away from emotion. If sadness comes up for me when I'm out and about, I don't know, maybe I'm in a social environment where there's lots of men around and part of me is still trying to feel like I need to show up and be manly. So an emotion comes up and let me push it down because they might not accept me. That still happens. Mm. And so that emotion doesn't go away. It goes down into my body. Mm. So I have space every day to make sure that I can release those emotions and sit with them and find compassion for myself in them. And, you know, if I can release that emotion every day, if I can spend 20 minutes concentrating on my breath, doing some breath work or whatever it may be, I'm going to release those emotions. And I find it hard to love myself. So why do I find it hard to love myself? Well, you know, like you, I have some of that issue around feeling like I was never cuddled, like nobody ever grabbed me by the cheek, by my skin and said, every piece of you is incredible, right? So I buy some creams and I put some creams on my face and I do it myself. And I start to learn that I'm tending to myself and my needs. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my needs met because 
have people in my life that support me in that. And it's only me that can really take charge for, for who I am and start to try and implement some of these stuff. I believe we're interdependent human beings, by the way. So I believe that I need people in my life that care for me on them days when I can't get up and do that 20 minutes because I've abandoned myself and I'm running and I'm scared. I need somebody who's going to grab me and say, I'm here. I don't care that you've done this, but I'm here for you. So I need that as well. And all of those things, you know, the circles that I exist in, they become vital for me because being in my emotions is not easy. And so I need to make sure that I find ways to do that. I really recognize that because um, it's funny that sometimes with M, because as you know, she's suffered with cancer for three three occasions and mm -hmm. she's battled through it and she's amazing, absolutely amazing. But there's times that I need her and she says to me, oh, you're just like a little boy you are at times. And that is my inner child coming out where mm -hmm. I need her to pinch my cheek and give me validation. And I'm all right with that. I, mm -hmm. I, I never, I never say, oh, you know, I'm this big six foot 18 stone man with tattoos everywhere. And, you know, come from Croydon. It's like, yeah, I, I want you to love me as a little boy as well. And we've discussed before about our inner child and how important that is to acknowledge that in your life as well. And after we left the BBC that day, I really thought about that. And quite often I visit my inner child, tell him he's okay, he's lovable, tell him I love him for who he is. And, and that's really important work as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's that reparenting stuff, right? It's that going back in and championing your inner child. And that moment where you're, you know, Emma says that you're like a five-year-old. It's because that's what you become. And I, and I do that. I do it all the time. And I'm, and listen, I need my wife sometimes to do that to me. And, you know, another thing is that I find it hardest to express myself in relationships where I'm desperately seeking attachment. So as much as I've opened my emotion and all that kind of stuff on this podcast with you, right, I, I actually have to do a little bit more work to, to do that in the space with my wife. And that's because I'm seeking attachment from her. And, and that, that there's parts of myself that still say, she's going to think you don't love her if you, if, if you tell her that. She's going to think that she can't love you. So, so, so just be all right all of the time, yeah? And be nice and easy and very lovable, and then everything will be fine, right? So I abandon myself in that. And so I have to find ways to express and authentically communicate with my wife that in this space, I need you. And that's not weakness. That's part of human nature. We're interdependent. We are built. I am built. I am made to be able to feel your emotions because I'm a social creature. So I'm supposed to be able to feel your emotions, right? And so I need to be able to make sure that I allow that to happen with the people that matter to me. And now my wife knows when I'm struggling. There may be times when we both struggle at the same time. That's when you might get clashes that's when you might not be there for one another but ultimately if she's emotionally available and i'm in a place she can sense and feel it and i can communicate it to her i learned to shut that off a long time ago and that was a problem reopening that again is a, is a is a vital part of what i need to be able to be myself today and we've talked quite a lot via message about being both very highly sensitive as well Mm -hmm. We both agreed that it's a superpower, but I think maybe I talk on Em's behalf. She struggles with that sometimes and she's guilty for saying, oh God, you're so sensitive. And I take that as a criticism. Does your wife, has she learned to deal with your highly sensitivity? We have to both learn how to deal with it. So being a highly sensitive person means that, you know, I feel other people's emotions deeply. So I have to work on my boundaries with that because... If my wife is struggling and I sense it, it's not my duty to always make it better for her. I need to step back and hold space. So I need to be clear with my boundaries. So sometimes if my wife says to me, you're being too sensitive, what she actually probably means is you're messing with my boundaries and your own boundaries with your sensitivity. So I need to self-reflect sometimes in that sense, right? Because I need to look, why is my wife feeling like I'm too sensitive, right? And sometimes it is to do with me. It's not because I'm too sensitive, it's because of what I'm doing with my heightened sensitivity. But there is, you know, she is also too had to to kind of adapt, right? To learn to be able to to deal with my sensitivity. Now, I could probably be a little bit controversial. Sometimes my wife will tell me to like snap out of it now. And I need a bit of that sometimes. Yeah. Cause it's like a punch in the gut when she says it. And sometimes it's exactly what I need because I've just got myself lost, right? And I've gone into my sensitivity and I'm in the emotions. And sometimes I need my wife to metaphorically splash some cold water on my face and say, come back to reality. Because 
I'd love to live on the top of a mountain and just do breath work all day, every day in a tent and not have to worry about life, but that ain't going to happen and real life happens. And so I do need to be in reality, right? I can't just be in my sensitivity and in my feelings and my emotions 24 seven, because then I ain't there for nobody else. Right? So it, listen, we're always learning. We're always learning together. We're always, you know, taking steps back as we fail to communicate or I go down a path of hiding behind a certain new character that I've created as part of myself, you know, and then I get six months down it and I've got to hold my hands up and say, I'm sorry, can we start again? This is not me. I've been hiding, but it's that consistent, you know, willingness. That's all it is. Willingness and awareness to want to do that. I think the reason why I'm smiling like a Cheshire cat is because quite often I've said to him, I just sometimes wish I could sit on a mountain <laughs> and do some breath work and, and live my years out like that. And it's funny how, you know, you help so many people now in, in what you do, which we go on to. But for me as well, it's like I, I go to the extreme sometimes where I just want to be completely in my own space to, to think deeply about life and what it means. You know, it, it's fascinating. So now, Josh, what's happening for you? I mean, you're an ambassador for NACOA. Tell, please tell me. So, yeah, I've been an ambassador for NACOA now, National Association for Children of Alcoholics, for a number of years. Over the last four years, we launched the first ever manifesto for children living with a parent that drinks too much, secured funding, first ever of its kind. I spoke at the House of Commons about four years ago, did like a 40-minute lecture on the impact, um, and we created massive change. Uh, you know, at the beginning of that campaign, we found that no constituents, 0%, had any plan whatsoever for children affected by parents drinking. Fast forward four or five years, and it's over 75% now do have some kind of strategy. What I will say is that in March this year, the government cut all funding to children's affected by our parents drinking again so we're back to zero but Nakoa has survived for 30 years on volunteers and donations um so we do incredible work in that space deliver lots of training to professionals in terms of how children are affected the core the keystone of it is the, the, the helpline that anyone affected by parents drinking can call anonymously remain anonymous if they want and so their a child's help and support should not be based on whether their parent has decided to get help and support for their own drinking, they should be empowered to do it themselves. And that's the, why the helpline is so vital. Um, and then in my professional life, four years ago, I left my job and I deliver well-being training, predominantly resilience-based stuff, understanding our emotions on a deeper level, coming back to ourselves. I've rolled that out globally with some massive organizations. I do, I get the opportunity to speak in some incredible places. I work with Hollyoaks, the scripting team, when they do storylines and campaigns alongside the storylines. I work with the whole team there um, in that sense. And, you know, that's, all, you know, I've re remarried, had two more children. So we've got six kids now. I'm going through some stuff now with my 14-year-old daughter. That is hard, hard work. Uh, but I'm showing up to it. I'm showing up. I'm not out drinking, running. I'm showing up to it. And my life has changed immeasurably from the man that led on that, on, on the fold-out bed at my mum's house. All my debts cleared. I own my own home. And listen, I don't say that to impress people. Actually, no, there probably is a part of me that does say it to impress people. Uh, but but mainly I say it to impress upon people how life can change, you mm. know, because my life has changed immeasurably. It's still hard. I've got to tell you, there's still days when I wake up in the morning and I feel the same as the day when I woke up on the 14th of May, just without the alcohol-induced grogginess. Emotionally, I feel exactly the same. That happens a lot. And when I'm in that, I often think this is the one I'm not going to get out of. So it happens. My life's not changed that much <laughs> uh, internally, but I'm showing up to it today. And that's the difference, you know, and I get to do things that I only ever dreamed of. I only ever dreamed of the work that I get to do today. And I'm very thankful. Even this, you know, sitting on a, on a podcast with somebody like you talking about my experiences. This is what I do with my life now. It's so it's incredible. And I love it. You blow me away, Josh, with your absolute honesty. And you're only 34, right? I'll be 34 in July, so I'm 30, 33, yes. And you're just so, so inspirational. For me, I mean, I, I'm your father's age, really. Do you know what I mean? 57, mm. and uh, I feel the same, yet I haven't got the years that you have ahead of you, you know. So I feel like I have to do as much as I can. And it's not for other people's validation, but I agree with you. Hardly it is, and that's being honest. Because we all like a bit of that sometimes, you know, like to feel like you're doing a good job, to feel worse. But mainly it's to get a message.
message out there that it's never too late to change. And for people at my age, I was only saying to him yesterday that I think if I hadn't have met her and I was in a different situation, I might not have been sober. Mm. So it's all serendipity, you know, but I am and I'm putting the message out there that it's never too late to change. You can lead a different life. You know, I could have 35, 40 years ahead of me now. You know, mm. space doesn't matter. It's what you provide for yourself, your loved ones around you. And if you can help people along the way, it's just fantastic. And I know you do that so well. You're such a, an amazing man. And I just feel so excited for you for the future. I just love seeing you grow and grow. I think you're a fantastic role model. And I feel truly honored that you've agreed to share your story on my podcast today. So thank you so much, mate. Thanks, Dave. Listen, it's good to know you, mate. And uh, I feel very emotional listening to you say it because it, it means a lot to me it means a lot to me you know like you and it doesn't matter about what age it happened when I was drinking I didn't I thought some people get to be happy and some people get to be sad and I'm just one of the people that's always going to be sad and I'm not sad every day anymore I have sad days and that's why I would say to you by the way very quickly that time doesn't actually really matter length of sobriety I think is irrelevant right mm -hmm. Because I've had times in, in the nine years where I was worse than what I was in the first week in a way that I behaved and show up to the world. What matters is my willingness to try. That happens day to day. And that's all we're doing. And I'm, I'm very thankful for you and thankful for the work. I'm thankful for the work that you do, particularly as well, because there's a need for it. Because if I go back to when I got sober, the only way you could get sober is if you fully admitted to yourself that you were full-blown alcoholic. Right. And, and, and that was the only way. And I think people like you will help people get sober earlier. A lot more people get sober earlier as a result. Uh, so I'm grateful for that, too. Well, I think uh, we both shared some incredible brotherly love there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Josh. And again, I'm truly grateful for you sharing this space with me and so many others. And let's meet soon at the BBC. Definitely. We can have an afternoon chatting like we do now. And uh, hopefully, we get the opportunity of meeting Tyson Fury again. Let's <laughs> think so. Maybe the meeting will have to be in Vegas. We'll have more opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Josh. Thank you so much, mate. Let's see each other soon. Definitely. Take care of yourself, mate. Take care. Cheers. Bye, mate. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave, or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and take care. Thank <laughs> you.